Over these uh, two Lord's Days, I've been preaching a short series, a three-part series, uh, looking into the words that I've just read for us, uh, the front words of John's Gospel, known as the prologue or the preface to the Gospel. And we've been thinking about the Word and thinking about three aspects of the Word. First of all, the activity of the Word. The Word was active in creation and across history, and more particularly in this church age or this gospel age through which we are currently passing. We noted the pre-existence of the Word, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We also noted his complete equality with the other two persons of the eternal Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit. And then this morning, we were looking again at these words in the prologue under the heading, The Announcement of the Word. And we were thinking of how the, this word, the announcement, was there right back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, was the first announcement of the coming of Messiah. And then, of course, through the whole length of the Old Testament dispensation, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and the main message of these prophets was to prophesy the coming of Messiah and to speak of his person and of his work. We also recognized that in human terms, following the incarnation at verse 6 of our chapter, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. And he was the way preparer for the word, as it were, for the Christ who would now come. So just glancing ever so briefly at verses 6 through to 13, we've referred to John just now. The same came for a witness. John was called to be a preacher. He was called to report those things that had been made known to him about Jesus Christ. He was called to testify before others at cost to himself in the end. So that was John. He came for a witness to bear witness of the light. Verse 8 makes clear that John was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lights every man that cometh into the world. The true light, of course, is Jesus Christ, who declared, I am the light of the world and there's always been that light in this darkened world firstly through the conscience through that magistrate within us through creation through the scripture and through the person and work of Jesus Christ and we read there at verse 10 that he was in the world the world was made by him the creator and yet the world knew him not the world did not recognize him did not recognize the light when the light was shining in that darkness. As verse 5 says, the darkness comprehended it not or apprehended it not. The darkness did not overtake the light or lay hold upon the light. He came unto his own, his own nation, the Jews, his own family, his own contemporaries, and his own largely received him not. But, verse 12, as many as received him, 
To them gave you power. To them gave you the right or the privilege to become the sons of God. Not that we have any inherent power or ability to make ourselves sons of God. But this is only power from above. That we were given that right, that privilege to become sons and daughters of God. Even to them that believe on his name. And then we are introduced at verse 13 to the act of regeneration. The spiritual birth. Which were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of God, born above by the Holy Spirit of God, the new birth. So this evening we are thinking about the appearance of the word, and I begin with a short story. I think it's a true story from a long time ago about a Swiss naturalist by the name of Huber. And apparently when this man was just a small boy... He was somewhere, perhaps in the garden or something, with his mother, and they were observing an anthill. And the young lad was looking down at this anthill. And as he was looking down at them, and they were so tiny compared with himself, even as a small boy, he asked his mother a question. He asked his mother, and he said to his mother, Do you think they're afraid of me, mother, these ants? And then he asked a second question that he would like them to know that he was fond of them. And how could he do that except by becoming an ant? And so Almighty God looked down upon this world of human beings, sinful human beings, and Almighty God decided in the eternal counsels that he would become a human being, that he would become like them, except without sin. Verse 14, And the Word, the Logos, the Christ, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The flesh dwelt among us. Notice the Apostle John doesn't say that Jesus was made flesh. Because before his incarnation, before Christ's incarnation, Uh, and uh, that he was made flesh of course he was the eternal word it was only through the incarnation when God became man and when Jesus was given his name for his human nature Jesus so we read here that it was the word the eternal word that became flesh and dwelt among us interestingly uh, for those of you who like this kind of detail as I do this is the final occasion that John uses this expression word when he's speaking about Christ thereafter in his book of John and in the gospels he speaks of Jesus or Christ or Jesus Christ and the word was made flesh so runs our authorized version but some of the modern versions I feel are more accurate Because properly we need to say, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. That's more accurate. One of the ancient creeds puts it simply like this, I quote, The Son of the Father alone neither was made nor created, but begotten. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, And the word was God. The same was in the beginning. Verse 1, the opening words of John's gospel. 
The word was made flesh. Flesh. It's a strong, even a crude word. I wonder what picture it brings to your mind when you think of flesh. Well, several, of course, but one comes to my mind of an animal that's been skinned and it's going to be eaten. And it may be described as the flesh of that animal. The word became flesh. This is underlining for us the reality of Christ's perfect manhood. That he became flesh. It's reminding us of, in his human nature, fully human nature, of his weaknesses and his fatigues and all the other experiences which we experience. When you think of Adam before the fall, then Adam was free from all these infirmities pre-fall. When you think of the last Adam, the true Adam, Christ, we read in Hebrews chapter 4 at verse 15 that he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Therefore, the only quality which God had given to human beings, which he himself did not possess, was flesh. And so, at the right time, the word became flesh. You see, flesh, the word, was to be God's vehicle for the revelation of himself the mighty, the eternal God. Flesh. Well, we experience sometimes in this life, do we not? We experience crises and troubles and hardships. And it's during those times and those moments when we realize our fleshliness, if there is such a word, when We're seeking to express ourselves, but we cannot use clear diction and carefully balanced sentences. That there's a twitching of the lips, there's a crimsoning of the cheeks, there's a moisture in the eyes. And so we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation then of Christ is evidence of God's condescending grace. That God the Father in heaven sent God the Son down to this earth. And it was chiefly for one purpose. It was to bring together a people for himself, the elect people of God. And Christ's mission finally was Calvary. And his dying love upon that cross for his people. He was in the world, verse 10, and the word was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Oh, what an ungrateful world. When there has been this supreme 
display of divine love and of tender mercy and of saving grace even to the eternal word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. You remember the Christmas carol. It's my favorite carol. Hark the herald angels sing. Wesley wrote, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And in the very original version of that hymn, I understand it was wrapped in flesh, the Godhead see. The word became flesh, but it remained the word. Because Christ took upon himself the divine nature and the human nature. Without laying aside his divinity, his, his divinity was veiled. Here's a quote, and this is referring to Jesus Christ. I am what I was, God. I was not what I am, man. I am now both. I'll repeat that for you. It's worth remembering. I am what I was, God. I was not what I am, man. I am now both. And so, to some extent, whilst he was here upon earth, the Christ's divinity was veiled because he was known commonly simply as the carpenter. The carpenter of Nazareth. Here is the perfect man. Here is the perfect God. The one who resisted temptation in the wilderness by the devil. The one who kept the law perfectly. The one who spent nights in prayer to his father. The one who was fully subject to the father's will. The one who suffered terribly, indescribably upon Calvary's cross for sinners and died and rose again. This is the one who dwelt among us. And we could say there, we could, we could insert the word tabernacle. The one who tabernacled among us, who lived among us. You remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament times that was that movable tent for the nation of Israel and in the very Holy of Holies where there was the Shekinah glory. Then this was the place where God revealed his glory to his people in the tabernacle. Toward the end of the Book, closing book of our Bibles in Revelation and chapter 21. I'll just read it for us. And a few verses in that chapter, beginning at verse 1. Revelation 21, verse 1. The Apostle John says, He saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. That's that vision, that future anticipated look for the new heaven and the new earth. And so the word became flesh, and tabernacled among us. 
I quote someone else here who described this as Christ enjoying eternal delights with the Father and then descending into this realm of misery and pitching his tent. I don't know if you have any personal experience of camping. Uh, I had in my youth (laughs) uh, many times camping with others and you arrive at the campsite and you pull out all the gear off the back of the lorry because there were quite a crowd of us and you start putting up the tents. You pitch your tent for a week or so. And Christ pitched his tent for 33 years here upon this earth. And he lived among men for a while. And he went to and fro all around the roads of Palestine and among his contemporaries. It wasn't just a brief visit of a few days. Think of a politician They just come along into a town and they come and they go after a few hours visit. Think of even the members of the royal family. They come amongst us perhaps, it's a royal visit. They just stay a short time, don't they? And then they return home or wherever. But not for the Son of God. Not for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He pitched his tent for 33 years among men. And so we never understand a word until it is made flesh. I've got another story here. This is another little boy, and he was a six-year-old boy, this little chap. And he was a six-year-old boy, and he was just beginning to grapple with the alphabet, these strange hieroglyphic letters, and trying to make some sense of them. But his dad gave him a spelling book and said, here you are, son, look at this and read that. But the boy could still not understand these strange hieroglyphics. So then the mother became involved and mum sat down next to her child and she put her arm around him as it were and she just began to gently explain to the little boy what all these hieroglyphics meant and how if you put some of these letters together you make a word. You see, the word became flesh. But then about ten years later when the lad was a teenager Amongst other activities and interests, he was a keen book reader and he made many books. And he noticed that the kind of books he was reading, it always seemed to include a love story. And he didn't understand, as a 16-year-old lad, about love. What does this love mean with this girl, this, this woman? And a few years later, he met a lovely girl and they were married. And then he understood Then the word became flesh, and he understood what love means. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, in effect, wrote his own divine autobiography. Because at whatever stage in life we look at the person of Christ, we may exclaim, Almighty God. So at Bethlehem, you peer down into the manger... And you can say, God manifest in the flesh. You then move north to Nazareth. You see this young boy in his community and among his parents. And you say, that is God manifest in the flesh. And then you see the teenager and the young adult working at the carpenter's bench. And you can say, this is God manifest in the flesh. And you see the fully adult man traipsing around the roads of Palestine, preaching teaching, performing miracles, and you can say this is God 
manifest in the flesh. God had revealed himself across the centuries through prophet and psalmist and later in the New Testament through apostle. But finally, the final word of revelation was the eternal word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Friend, do you understand this word? Do you understand this word? When we read that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Do you understand that this word is that revelation of God to human beings through the person of his own beloved son, his only begotten son? Do you understand who Jesus is properly? That he is, yes, This Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, in his human nature. But oh, he is so much more than that in his divine nature. He is the pre-existent one. He's the one who carries within him all the attributes and perfections of God. He is the one who became the saviour of sinners. As we read in our first scripture reading, those lovely words, possibly part of the fragment of an early Christian hymn, Philippians chapter 2, the Christ being in the form of God, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, co-equal, but he made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a serpent, made in the likeness of men, found in fashion as a man, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. God has demonstrated his infinite love to this fallen and sinful world, to people who still do not comprehend, who are still living in that spiritual and moral darkness. And yet Christ has died And Christ is now making that offer to people for a new life and a spiritual life. You no longer need to inhabit that kingdom of darkness. Look, there's a kingdom of light with all its possibilities and its joys and its blessings and its mercies. Do you realize how privileged you are, Christian friend, that you, a human being, in all your weakness and in my weakness too and imperfections that we may enjoy communion with God. That God is not just a distant being, someone we cannot locate, someone we cannot enjoy a relationship, but every day we may enjoy communion with God in our personal devotions and on other occasions. That we may enjoy fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy union In Christ, because we are so closely related to Him. Oh, for those living in darkness, oh, that they knew the truth of the gospel, oh, that they knew something about this abundant life that has been offered to them by God's grace and mercy. Notice there is a parenthesis running through the middle of verse 14. John writes, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. For the evangelist John and for other eyewitnesses, they beheld his glory. They beheld his glory. Now, some of the modern versions, they put it this way. They said they had seen his glory. Well, that's all right, but it's not good enough. 
because it needs to be stronger than seen. It needs to be they beheld. And I'll tell you why. Because the word beheld means you look at something under close scrutiny. Even wonderment. You behold something. You behold a sunset. It means that you scan and examine something. And so that's what the apostles and others did whilst Jesus walked this earth. They scanned, they examined him with their eye and with their mind. They rested upon him, the incarnate word. They noticed the radiance of his grace and the majesty of his truth. They saw it in his works, in his deeds, in his death and resurrection. Chapter 2 and verse 11, this is about the first miracle, the changing of the water into wine at Cana. And notice at verse 11, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory. If you run on in this gospel to uh, John chapter 11 and that narrative concerning Lazarus, You will read there that Lazarus said before it happened that he was going to manifest his glory when Lazarus came out of the grave and was risen from the dead. So they beheld Christ's glory, perhaps through his miracles, through his triumphant ascension back to heaven, but I think more pertinently through the transfiguration when Peter, James and John were standing with the Christ on the mountain and Christ was transfigured before them along with Moses and Elijah and they beheld his glory. The only begotten of the Father, verse 14 toward the end of the verse, the only begotten means, uh, it means of one of a kind. One of a kind. Not subordinate, to the Father, but one of a kind that is unique in his offices and his role as the Christ. And through his preaching and through those lovely messages of grace, he was offering unmerited favor to those who were still walking in darkness, full of grace and truth. Reminds me of uh, when I water my little vegetable plot with the watering can and water, and I fill the watering can right to the very top, as much water as possible in the can, and then it carry it very carefully outside. And so we read here that when the only begotten of the Father came, he was full, he was overflowing, if you like, with grace and truth. For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Someone has said this, that it's rather like the waves on a seashore. The waves that follow one another, taking place all the time of another. Just wave after wave when the tide is coming in. And this is how it is for Christ's people in terms of full of grace and truth. Verse 16, and his fullness of all we received and grace for grace. Verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law was good. Of course the law was good, because it was given by God 
through, to Moses, to the people of Israel. So the law was good, but there were two things where the law fell short. It was unable to supply this fullness of grace, and its demands were unable to save sinners. There were the types, and there were the shadows, and the figures in the Old Testament. There was the whole ceremonial system, and the whole sacrifices, and the offerings, but these were only pointers. This was not in that full sense the reality because they were always pointing forward down the centuries to Christ. And when Christ came, then it, he would bring with him grace and truth. The reality would now have arrived. Now God's unmerited favor, grace, would be offered to people. And now people would be able to understand with the Spirit's help, the truth about God, the divine truth. The final word, as it were, in terms of those shadows and those types and those figures, they were all preparatory in character. They were revealing our lost condition. But they were foreshadowing a great deliverance. Verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man hath seen God at any time. How could they? Because God is spirit. Yes, there were those pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. We call them theophanies to a number of people in the Old Testament. But that was just a a glimpse as it were it was still veiled was that sight of almighty God no one has ever seen God but God the one and only at the father's side has made him known God is spirit but the word became flesh and dwelt among us friends in my Estimation, as we've had our Bibles open last Sunday and today, and this preface, this prologue to the fourth gospel, we have been on holy ground. We have been looking at words which we can never completely fathom. My poor exposition of this word, you could go so much deeper, friends. And I think I mentioned it last week that it's a good exercise if you're feeling a little bit depressed. If you're struggling with life, it's a well worth doing and as an exercise to read very slowly and meditatively the words of John chapter 1, particularly the first five verses, but if you wish, the first 18 verses. And in these words, you will read of the Word, and you'll read of the activity of the Word in creation and in history and in his present gospel age. You'll read about the announcement of the word right back from Genesis chapter 3 and following up until that moment with the coming of John the Baptist, the way preparer. And this evening we've been looking at the appearing, so the, the appearing of the word when Christ was made flesh and dwelt among us.